Well, first things first, I see that I should have left my tie back in Virginia. Um, Even in my own church, I don't wear a tie, so I like jeans best of all, and a lot of you do too, I can see. So if you could just reimagine all this, I don't have a tie on, I have my jeans on, and I'm more like you are, so... Um, second thing I want to say to you is that I was, came here yesterday morning with some of the rest of you, I'm sure, but parked down the street just over on this side and was walking down along the way, and a guy who lived two or three houses down the way said to me, what's going on down there? And I said, well, they're having a dis- day-long discussion about the common good, about the city and the common good. He said, really? And I said, yeah, they're, I think they're pretty good people down there, actually. I said, I live in Virginia, so I'm not really part of the group, but... Um, I think they're good people. And he said, the common good, that's intriguing to me. So when you think about your neighbors, remember there are people like that around here who are becoming intrigued by who you are. So the second thing is that um, you saw Tom Nelson speaking uh, via video when we walked in this morning. But Tom and I are long friends and travel the country month by month talking about Christ Community Church. And I think that what God's doing with you and among you is a good story. It's an unusual story. It's a remarkable story. And uh, I'm glad to be your friend and proud to be your friend too. So, Well, come and see. Come and see. Come and see. A few years ago, my wife and I were in Lawrence, Kansas on Mass Avenue. Uh, I think it was you know, some glorious basketball week in, in Lawrence. And in some store where you might imagine all kinds of t- t-shirts were being sold in the glory of the Jayhawks, there was one that I caught my eye, and it said, KU, the birthplace of Carolina basketball. <laughs> and uh, I sent that to some friends. I took a photo of it with my iPhone, took some to some friends in the Chapel Hill area and said, here it is, guys. <laughs> now, here it is, really. Um, but behind all that, of course, is something which is clearly, plainly, something like this. If you want to know what basketball is and how it's to be played, you better come to KU, the birthplace of Carolina basketball, after all. And so for some generations now, you know, there's been a kind of an odd movement between Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Lawrence, Kansas, and coaches and players and coaches and players, and sometimes there have been heartache moments when the Roy Williamses of the world say, I think I'm going home finally, you know, and you feel like all of you know, history has stopped, really, and what will happen possibly in the future for the Jayhawks. And then, of course, surprise of surprises, Bill Self comes, and he does it himself, and, and then heartbreak of heartbreaks, they, they lose to Michigan. So. But if you want to know what basketball is like, the argument is, of course, you'd better come and see at KU. Some years ago, there was a film called Amazing Grace, maybe you saw it, the story of William Wilberforce and his friends, the Clapham community, the story of this remarkable group of men and women who gave themselves for the years of their lives to trying to see a change take place in Britain and really all over the world, because at that point, Britain was the empire of the world. The sun never set on the British Empire, after all. And the major economic engine of the British Empire at that point was the slave trade. So there was no, this was not a cheap conversation to have politically and socially. This economic engine ran the empire. Wilberforce and his friends had this sense of call from God to take up the question of the abolition of the slave trade and of slavery. There were editorials written, there were political debates, there were headlines in papers, 
But people at large didn't seem to get it, really. Wilberforce, for 10 years, went to the parliament, a member of parliament, introduced bills to abolish slavery, and again and again and again, 10 different years, he was said, go home by his colleagues. We're never, ever going to take this up. They began to rethink the strategy, and they determined that, in fact, the culture was upstream from politics, as it always is everywhere for everyone, actually. The culture is upstream from politics. And they began to realize they'd have to address the people at large, because as long as the people didn't think that slavery was wrong, the part was never going to make a costly decision, actually. It always works that way. And so they took up child welfare projects and education projects and agriculture reform and uh, chimney sweep reform and on and on and on. Sixty different societies they created over the course of years to rethink, to reweave the social fabric of English society. And some 30 years later, eventually the bill was... You know, past. But along the way, a fascinating moment is picked up by the filmmakers of Amazing Grace. They chose these the high and the mighty of London society to take a, a lovely afternoon uh, ride on a boat going through the, through the Thames. Uh, you can imagine they had, guitar, had violins playing and cellos playing and wonderful things to eat and they were having a great time together, and then slowly, slowly, inch by inch, all of a sudden you begin to see their nose begin to crinkle and like, and then, you know, they begin to bring their, nap, their handkerchiefs out and they begin to look like they're getting sick, really, and then the boat stops and Wilberforce says, I want you to smell what's going on here. They were at that point stopped beside a slave trading ship, and they begin to talk about what had happened with people dying and over the course of weeks and months being put in the under parts of the ship and being brought to be slaves in the Caribbean and brought back to London. And, of course, a society built upon the slave trade as it was, having no real sense of what the human cost of all this was supposed to be, how it actually got worked out, until they had to begin to, to smell its cost, to smell its meaning, actually. And Wilberforce, in effect, was saying, come and smell Come and smell. Because you're not going to understand what the words mean, these words in the debates in Parliament, the words in the editorials in the paper, the words you may be having in conversations with friends until you begin to smell the cost, actually, to smell what it means. Come and see? Well, for that moment in time, it was come and smell. The biblical vision of this story, this image, this call to come and see We've had it read wonderfully by Bill this morning. But let me take us into it for a little bit here. It's John chapter 1, which in my own life, I would say, was always a more mysterious book of the Gospels for me. It's easier to read Matthew and Mark and, and Luke. John was a more difficult one because it was just seemed more mysterious to me. It was these longer discourses of Jesus about things which I had a harder time understanding, really. But then I began to decide, you know, some years ago that I was going to spend at least a while reading through. For almost 10 years of my life, I decided just to dig and dig and dig and dig away at the Gospel of John, trying to ask this question, so what does it mean that the Word became flesh? What does it mean that the Word became flesh? And you can see, of course, the Gospel of John as grounded in a deeper, longer story that the Bible is telling. It's in part a story formed by the Hebrew way of thinking about the world. We are Christian people, people bought by, by Jesus, 
We identify with the cross. But we are, on a deeper level, Hebrew people, if you can understand that. We are called to be people shaped by the Hebrew vision of life. The Hebrew vision of life is assumed in the Gospels. Jesus was fully God, fully human, fully Hebrew. So the questions about what did Hebrews think, how did they think, is a good question for us to be asking about, actually. How do Hebrew people think about things? Well, in contrast to the Greco-Roman world that began to dominate that part of the, of, uh, the globe at that period of history, where you could have conversations about the idea of justice, the ideal of wisdom, these abstractions which somehow found their homes in the heavenlies, not really having much to do with who we were as human beings. For the Hebrews, it always had to be something much more grounded. You couldn't believe something until actually you could see that it got worked out. The question of knowing, for example, what knowledge means. For the Hebrew people, you couldn't know in the abstract. You couldn't say, well, of course I know that. I know that. Come on, of course I, I know that, of course. And then we walk away letting ourselves off the moral hook as if somehow I can know but not do. For the Hebrew people, unless you connected knowing with doing, you hadn't really ever known was the harder vision. If you knew, then, of course, you were going to do. We could spend hours on this, but just to simply say it like this. From Genesis to Malachi, there is this vision of Hebrew knowing, which sounds something like, if you have knowledge of, it means you have responsibility to. It means you have care for. And so if you know, then you have to care. Because you see, knowledge has to be worked out in life. Now, much more could be said here, but hear that then as backdrop to John's first chapter here. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. You see, for the Hebrew people incarnate now in Jesus, there is this deep commitment to words have to become flesh to understand them. Not only is this vision the heart of our theology, this vision of incarnation, but actually it's the heart of good learning. It's genius pedagogy. It's the very best pedagogy. Story by story, chapter by chapter, it's always one more window into the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us for a while. Think about the stories that proceed from John chapter 1. I, I love John 3 for many, many reasons. On the one hand, we, you know, know blind, with our eyes closed, John 3.16. We can recite it at the click of a finger, really. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But you see, the story isn't that story, I would say, even at its best, even that is a wonderful, important summary of God's salvation history. The story is, of course, of Nicodemus, who is the, the teacher of the law, the best reading that I can make of this, actually, he is the, the teacher of the teachers of the Hebrews. He is the teacher of the law. He's been hearing Jesus speak in the, in the synagogue in Jerusalem. And he is drawn in. He is like your neighbor here. He's intrigued by what he hears. Not quite sure what it means, though. In fact, he's perplexed by what he's hearing. So finally, one night, nobody can see him. He walks and finds his way to Jesus and says, I have a question for you. And the question is this. And you know how the conversation goes. It's a back-and-forth conversation for a while. Um, the surprising words, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. Don't you get that? You must be born again, actually. And it walks its way through, eventually, to John 3.16. 
But even after that, I would say the climax of the story is actually some verses later, where Jesus says to Nicodemus and to all the rest of us, you see, you never will understand Nicodemus until you begin to practice the truth. Until you begin to do the truth, Nicodemus, you won't get what I'm saying. Now hear that, brothers and sisters. Until you begin to practice the truth, until you begin to do the truth, you won't get it. Because you see, you can't get it intellectually, abstractly. You are the teacher of the law of all things, Nicodemus, the most honored of all the rabbis of Israel. And yet you don't do the truth. And that's why you don't understand what I'm saying. You see, it's not only the heart of our theology, it is genius pedagogy. Until we begin to actually learn to learn in that way, to begin to actually work out what we believe in the groundedness of life, in the ordinary places of life, in the day-by-dayness of life, we won't actually understand what it is we're hearing. It's that hard. It's that important, really. I love the next chapter, Jesus and the woman in Samaria. If you could just imagine Jesus, in some ways, humanly frustrated, maybe divinely frustrated too, in Jerusalem, people not taking seriously, not hearing, the Nicodemuses of the world hearing but not doing, he decides to walk back up into the Galilee. And as a good Pharisee, if he'd been a Pharisee, he would have actually crossed the Jordan River going over to its east because he wouldn't want to cross through Samaria. These were a compromised people people you wouldn't want to be close to, which even adds more to the weight of the story of the Good Samaritan, actually. But we won't talk about that here. But Jesus decides to walk right up straight north to the Galilee through Samaria, fully human, fully divine. He's thirsty in the middle of a hot day. He asks for a drink of water sitting by a well. A woman who is there, probably we could read into this, a woman who's there somewhat scorned by her friends in the village. She doesn't go when they go in the morning and the evening, but it comes in the middle of the day because she won't be seen by other people who have to hear their scorn upon her. Because why? Well, she's had a pretty sexually uh, florid life, really. Pretty depressing life in many ways. Had many husbands, and the one she lives with now isn't her husband, as Jesus finally says to her. Well, it's an innocent conversation about getting a drink of water, which turns into this mysterious, here's water that will never, ever, never make you thirsty again. I'd like water like that, Jesus. He says, well, then go call your husband. It almost seems unfair to me, actually. Like, Jesus, are you sure you want to go there that quickly? (sighs) Go call your husband now. And she says, well, he says, well, in fact, you've had five husbands, and the one you live with now isn't your husband. I see that you're a prophet, Jesus. She, She says to Jesus, I don't know about your life. I'm pretty sure it's pretty much like my life. But this business of relationships, of male-female relationships, of sexual life and history, of hopes and dreams scattered about your life and mine and the world, it's probably the most tender of all things we ever talk about to anybody. And most of we, we don't talk about it to anybody because it's so tender for all of us, really. We don't open up on that level to hardly anybody, really. So for Jesus to speak right into this most tender of all places in the human heart, and for her to say to him, I see that you are a prophet. Well, before the story's all over, she runs back to the village where she is the scorned woman. She says, the most amazing thing has happened, actually. This man knows everything about me, you see, and he loves me. She's been known by many men, 
not loved by any of them, actually. For Jesus to know her and to love her, that's remarkable, actually. We could walk our way through these stories chapter by chapter, but what I want you to see and to hear is, in fact, there's something for us to understand about who Jesus is, how he lives, how he sees the world around him. To come and see, really, is not only these words Jesus offers initially, repeated by an early disciple, come and see them, come and see them, come and see them. But you see, we are called, I think, in our own time and place to come and see Jesus more deeply, more fully, as we spend our time in the Gospel of John. There are implications for this way of seeing life that I think actually go across the whole of life. So, life and then labor, and love, and learning, and even liturgy. This past week, Edith Schaefer died. Um, Maybe you know her, maybe you don't know her. She was the wife of a man named Francis Schaefer. I first met her reading a book called Labrie when I was about a 17, 18-year-old. A friend of mine who was a, a mentor to me at that point in my life gave me the book and thought I should read it, and I read it, and I was enamored by the story of Labrie, this community in the mountains of Switzerland where people could come and ask honest questions, hoping to get honest answers. About two years later, I met her. I was hitchhiking through a snowstorm, and her husband was speaking someplace. I wanted to listen to him, and I found him, and standing in a line at a dinner, he was beside me, and I didn't know what to say to him because I was so intimidated by him, really. And, and, uh, but then she opened up her arms and said, let's talk. And she drew me in, not only physically, but emotionally, and the best of who I was wanting to be as an older boy, I suppose. And She said, why don't you come and be part of our life? And I sort of melted at the invitation, really. Um, about a year later, I ended up at this place called Labrie. I remember being in Geneva, Switzerland, with a backpack and a thumb, and you know, somebody stopped on the side of the road and said, you want a ride in English? And I said, English, that's pretty good, really. And Are you going to Labrie? I thought, how would you ever ask a question? This is like two or three, four hours away from where Labrie was. And just like, are you going to Labrie? This place where you could actually ask an honest question and get an honest answer. I remember in the course of my time there, beginning to get some sense of who Mrs. Schaefer was and the way she saw the world, how she acted in the world. There was a way of seeing the world that became a way of living for her. In fact, you could begin to actually identify the young women who were in the Labrie community who'd spent more time with her because in some ways they had begun to imitate who she was. And she, they acted certain ways like she did. They kind like she was. They smiled in some ways like she did. They were interested in, in providing good meals like she provided good meals for us. They were concerned about putting flowers on the table like she put on flowers on the table. And on and on and on, a sense of there was a, an artful way of living which they began to embody, and you could actually kind of see them. I see that you've been here for a while, and you've been here for a while, and you've been here. Because you see, you're beginning to live in a certain way that looks a little bit like Mrs. Schaefer has lived her life. I remember being invited to have a, a blackberry lunch one day. And uh, here I was a 20-year-old from California, and never tried that in my whole life, really. And a blackberry lunch, they gave us plastic buckets and said, go off and collect a ba- bunch of blackberries from the, you know, the neighboring fields here and come back and with your stomachs and your buckets full. And uh, 
I'm sure it was something Mr. Schaefer must have imagined, really, kind of a playful, creative, artful, but, he's, but at the very end of the day, of course, nutritious and fun way to eat your way through the week. You see, words have to become flesh for us to understand them. In the world of labor, I think the same truth is true. We have five children, Meg and I. One of them is a son named Elliot. Uh, When he was a a little, little boy, we persuaded him finally to begin to move from being a little boy to some other stage of being a little boy by, you know, promising him a little rabbit one day if he would stop doing something. And he was motivated enough to stop it and we offered him a rabbit, and I have a picture still that's one of my prized pictures of our family life over the years. And him just seeing it for the first time, and his eyes are just completely opened up like, I can't believe I have a bunny rabbit in my own, very own hands here, really. Well, I began to watch Elliot, you know, reading stories. We would read stories. He would be as happy actually reading stories about rabbits, different kinds of rabbits, as he was about a particular bunny rabbit named you know, Henry or something. He was interested in all kinds of things about animals. As a little boy, he used to press on me, Daddy, will we ever live on a farm while I'm still a boy? And I wished that we did. He began to ask me, well, how about if we just cut down our azaleas and put llamas in the backyard then? Because, of course, llamas will die if they eat azaleas. You know, and I couldn't figure out how to do that, really. And we did have some lambs for a while in our suburban Virginia home. Uh, had a backyard chicken operation going on for many years, actually. It was his initiative. He had this idea to begin to grow chickens and sell their eggs at school. And so he and I went off one morning to the Home Depot and figured out what we needed to do and built this chicken coop for you know, chickens that would be worthy to keep out the raccoons that were malicious creatures trying to eat their way through our chicken uh, chickens. And we did that for a long time, actually. Elliot was the initiating person in the family for that. In high school, he began to want to learn more about animals, and I had a friend at the National Zoo, and I said, well, would Elliot be able to come and do this with you? And I was a freshman, sophomore in high school. He began to take the metro down to, into the city and be an intern at the National Zoo. When he went off to the University of Virginia, um, I remember one day hearing from him when he was at the end of his second year there, and... Uh, He'd applied with his professor's encouragement to a project in Australia with some kind of wild mammal program. And he went through all the papers and sent off all the things and finally got this letter back saying, you're motivated and able, but this is for graduate students. We're sorry. Come back some years later. He was devastated by that and said, what should I do, really? And I said, what do you want to do? And so after it all happened, I said, well, I have a friend who has a cattle rancher in California, north of Santa Barbara. Would you be interested in something like that? And he said, well, I'd, I'd like that. So that summer and the next summer and the next summer, Elliot spent time on his cattle ranch in, in California, not only with this guy, but him of his friends. And you know, there was a veterinarian clinic working with horses in that part of California. And uh, then he spent part of his last year, I guess maybe most of his last year at UVA, working for the Virginia Equine Clinic uh, outside of Charlottesville. Uh, just learning more and more about animals and how they're cared for. And, and then went off to veterinary school. Um, and he's now in Sicily uh, working as a veterinarian. Um, many, many things I could say more about all that. But watching Elliot's own sense of vocation unfold over the course of his life, what I've seen is it is his young loves have matured into more adult loves, from backyard chickens to being a veterinarian 
in Sicily. You see, it grows out of apprenticeships of all sorts, doesn't it? Of internships of all sorts and sizes. The best learning, the truest learning for all of us, for my son and for each one of us, is what I've called over-the-shoulder, through-the-heart learning. We don't learn anything that really matters to us outside of learning like that. Over-the-shoulder and through-the-heart. For 14-year-old boys who want to learn about the business of sports, to 18-year-olds who decide they want to learn to fix cars, the 22-year-olds whose longing is to step into the complex world of international diplomacy. You see, each one is a story of an internship, an apprenticeship, where what one learns to do is primarily learned from someone who knows more and is willing to allow a younger person to come and see. Some years ago, I had a young, I had met a young man who wanted to start work in the world of business. And I said to him, well, I have a friend who's a very good businessman, very thoughtful about his business. Why don't I get a hold of him and ask him, would he spend time with you? So my friend flew across the country to spend time with this other older friend. And it was really just simply a day in the life of both of them. But you see, it was a day that has shaped a life. Years later, my younger friend still speaks about what he heard, what he saw, what he learned, how that has shaped his own sense of calling, of vocation, into the marketplace of his own city and and world. Words have to become flesh for us to understand them. Come and see. Well, how about in the world of love? In the world of love. I describe my wife, Meg, as the woman that I love to love. We have a common vocation together, actually. I have lived, we've lived together for 36, seven years now, I suppose it is, and I've traveled a lot, really, all over the country and beyond doing the work that I do. I've never, ever, ever had this sense from her, even in the, you know, by the look of the eye or the way her mouth would work, ever, ever the sense that what I'm going off to do is something that she doesn't bless completely. It's a great, great, great gift to me, really. I never have to, have to deal with what the Proverbs speak of as a dripping faucet kind of experience of life, really. Somebody who's angry, irritated, frustrated, again, do this again this week. You know. But I've always had this deep sense that we have a common vocation together, and she's fully part of who I am and what I do. We found a way into a good life together, a good love together. I remember some years ago sitting with a friend, young friend, who was all of a sudden one day said to me and to a few other guys, I'm getting married. We thought, to whom? And he named a person none of us knew really, and We've been having breakfast together for months, really, the four of us. We said, really? Married? We all began to, we joined in and got to know her a little bit and watched him. And it wasn't right, really. It just wasn't a good idea, frankly. Um, We all talked to him about it. Uh, He wouldn't listen to any of us in the end. They got married. We were all at the wedding to support him in his hopes and promises and Probably it was two, three years later when we began to talk more about things and he began to share with me at least you know, that it wasn't really all that he wanted to have as a marriage, as a, as a uh, man, and he was frustrated and disappointed. And I remember looking at him and just thinking, why wouldn't you listen to us, actually? Why didn't you listen to us? Um, it wasn't a, I told you so at all because I loved him, really. It was more, why couldn't we have thought this through more fully together? as a little community around you. 
Well, he eventually did say goodbye to his bride and went off. And I know probably five years later in the church that we're part of, I was talking to a couple who were older than Meg and I, and they said, you know, we've actually started a marriage mentoring ministry here in the church out of your friendship with this young man. Because we begin to see that, in fact, sometimes people just make the worst choices possible because they haven't thought it through very carefully. So to get married in our church, you have to actually learn to be in love and what love means and what marriage looks like through a mentoring relationship over the course of some months. If you want to get married here and be part of our community, we require that of you because you're going to have to learn to learn over the shoulder, through the heart, what marriage looks like. Words have to become flesh for us to understand them. In the world of learning, what does this mean? Maybe you've seen the Atlantic cover story this month right now. It's called the touch screen generation. It's a little girl, a toddler, two or three or four-year-old, I suppose, with an iPad, and she can't see her face because she's got it blocked off by the iPad. And the article is a pretty thoughtful, complex, nuanced account of what it means for toddlers of the modern world to be learning about the world through the iPad. My wife and I were with our son and his family in Sicily last week. We have a two-year-old granddaughter. And she is so adept at just putting her finger across the screen of my iPhone and just flicking, 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 flicking. And you think, Magdalena, are you sure? You know, see, 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 she wants to say. See, I want to see. I want to see, really. It isn't that I want to ponder the meaning of the universe, really, you know, and what these pictures might mean about my life, my family. I just want to flick my way to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, really. And the article, in its own more complex way, is exploring this. One of the arguments that's made in the article, though, is that, hands down, kids learn the things that matter most to them, not through iPhones and iPads and screens. They learn them from their parents. If you actually want to guard the hearts and minds of your young children, you're going to have to be willing to spend time with them, teaching them face-to-face, word-by-word, day after day. It isn't a screed against iPhones and iPads. That's not the point of it, really. But it's the deepest kind of learning, the best kind of learning, the most important kind of learning happens when actually you look each other in the eye and you're beginning to walk through life together. I teach a group of fellows year by year who come to Washington, D.C., and I have asked them to read many books, really, but three books are these books, and I want you to hear them, because in some ways they are, for all of us, asking this question of what does it mean to come and see and learn about the things that matter most. I have them read a book called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains is a subtitle. The Shallows is the evocative title of the book. The Shallows. Hear it again. The Shallows. But the argument is actually that making our way through the world through a computer screen, hyperlinking our way through all the things we begin to learn about, actually is changing the way that we learn, changing the way that we see the world. It actually is rewiring our brains is the, is the argument he's making. He calls it the shallows. I think it's a sobering title, actually. It's a probing title for all of us. How are we going to avoid being shallow people, less interested in nuance, less interested in complexity, because, in fact, we were learning to learn about the world in ways which finally aren't very good for us. I have them read that book, but I have them read also a book by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book. Eat This Book. 
It's this Peterson's own take on Lectio Divina, this slow, meditative reading of Scripture. Because you say, I want them, on one hand, to, to smell the world, to know what's going on in the world, but I want them, at the same time, to be able to see that, in fact, this long, ancient call of God's people to slowly, meditatively work Scripture in and through your heart, that somehow these are in tension with each other in the year 2013. And you might, in one sense, see the critique of, of the shallows, you might feel the call of Lectio Divina, but you see you're going to have to be thoughtful about it and careful about it and realize, in fact, that you're probably being already shaped and pushed in a way which makes you less interested in that kind of more slow, meditative, transforming reading of the Scriptures. So that that's a more microscopic reading of Scripture, I have them read a book called The Drama of Scripture too, which is a story which you know so well here of ought, is, can, and will of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Having them see this grand meta-narrative the Bible is telling us, seeing it also through Peterson's Lectio Divina, but in tension with the world we live in today, where the shallows is an awfully good, awfully sobering, awfully evocative title that talks about our life in the world. I've taught five kids to throw a Frisbee. Each time, of course, I didn't give them a little primer here is Frisbee throwing 101. The only way they can learn, actually, is for me to put my hand over their shoulder, holding onto their arm, saying, it's, your finger's like this, you see, and you have to do it like this, and you bend your knees a little bit like this, and you put it by your, by your hip, and you let it out like this, and, of course, they don't let go of it initially. They just let go. They hold on to it, and you say, no, you have to let go. And finally, they let go, and it goes right into the ground, you know, two feet in front of them. But after the course of a few days and a few weeks, you know, you're going to say, well, then throw it to me like this. And then after maybe a year or so, you're throwing as far as you possibly can across the lawn. And they're leaping up to get it by their hands. Maybe four or five years later, they're saying, throw it again. And they reach behind their back and they pick it up this way again. But you see, with none of my children has it ever been possible to give them a book about frisbee throwing. It has to be actually, and in fact, I get over their shoulder and I say, it's more like this, you see. We don't learn anything that really matters to us, that really transforms us, apart from this over-the-shoulder, through-the-heart learning. Well, finally, liturgy, liturgy. I've spoken in this area several times in the last few years, different parts of Kansas and Missouri, and a year or so ago, I was speaking at a men's retreat for a church, and not this one at all, really. Uh, an ophthalmologist who probably was about 65 years old, who'd been part of the founding of a church, a good man. He was an elder in the church. He was a godly, determined, gifted, contributing man, really, a good person. But the evening I, I spoke about this idea of vocations and what they mean for the world. Sitting in a small group with him afterwards, he said to me, you know, I've never, ever, ever, ever thought that what I do with my life has anything to do with what God cares about. I said, an ophthalmologist you are, though. People learn to see the world. He says, I just never thought about it, really. But it actually connected what I, the way I worship and the way that I work. What I believe to be true about God with what I actually do in the world. I could tell you stories until the literal cows come home about all this. I was here on Wednesday morning through Friday afternoon with a year-long learning community. Uh, Amy Sherman, who was speaking yesterday and Friday night, she and I have been working together for a year with 16 churches across America. To be part of it, you had to bring both a pastor, be a pastor, and a person from the marketplace to be in this learning community. And the idea was we wanted to recast what the church teaches about vocation and what it means for the world. 
And so we've met in Washington last summer, in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the fall, here at Christ Community this past week. We're going to be in L.A. in the summertime for, to finish the year together. But the whole idea is to try to recast what the church teaches about what vocations mean for the mission of God, the work of God in the world. It's hard, hard work, really. It's really hard work, I would say, in many ways, because there's such a long history of missiness, of misteachingness, of misconstruing this. It's a thousand times, you know, people who say things like this to me, a businessman who spent his life in the marketplace saying a few years ago, Steve, you know, I try to be a good member of the church. You know, I love my pastor. I contribute. I help. I want to be a good person in his life, really. I want to be a contributing member of the congregation. He said, you know, I have to just say to you, I've never, ever, ever thought, listening to a sermon, that the pastor thought about somebody like me. He was assuming in some ways, he said that, that I live my life in the context of the building of the church, like he does. He says, where I'm out in the world of Wall Street, was where his, his own occupation had been. He says, I'm out pushing, shoving, trying to make decisions and choices that have consequences for people around the world. And he says, there's just a disconnect for me, really, between what I hear Sunday by Sunday and what I do with my life Monday through Friday. Those stories go on and on and on for me. I offered this learning community this past week this prayer. And here are these words They're from a man named John Bailey, who was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in the mid-20th century. O Lord of the vineyard, I beg thy blessing on all who truly desire to serve thee by being diligent in their several callings, bearing their due share of the world's burden, and going about their daily tasks in all simplicity and uprightness of heart. For all who tend flocks or who till the soil, for all who work in factories or in mines, for all who buy and sell in the marketplace, for all who labor with their brains, for all who labor with their pens, for all who tend the hearth, dear Lord, I pray. The credo for the Washington Institute is simply this, that vocation is integral, not incidental, to the missio dei. In our church, the Falls Church in Virginia, some years ago, having a conversation with the pastors there, we persuaded them that they should not only keep praying for missionaries in Kazakhstan and church planners in, in Kenya, but they should pray for lawyers on K Street, which is the colloquial, proverbial place where the lawyers hang out in Washington, D.C. They should pray for people who are journalists, people who are kindergarten teachers, people who are you know, business people, they pray for people who are mothers at home, home with their children. They should pray for all sorts of people week by week. So now we have a practice regularly maintained in the life of our congregation that week by week we pray for people who are not only young life staff people in the city and who are, you know, planning churches in Kazakhstan, but we pray for so-and-so, a kindergarten teacher, and so-and-so, a journalist, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, by name, by vocation, simply to remind us that as we worship together, in fact, all of us are part of the story. We're all part of this, actually. It isn't just for those people who do things that are sort of set apart as more holy or more special or more spiritual work. Because you see, of course, all of us, every vocation is integral, not incidental to the missio dei. We've not done very well, have we, in helping the people of God understand their work as work that matters to God. And we need to do better for God's sake, for the world's sake. Well, a conclusion. At Christ Community Church, you make much of a yoked life, a yoked life. In the Leewood campus, you know, in the offices behind there, there's a f- picture there of a, a yoke, and Tom Nelson speaks about this and writes about this. 
I have some words here from Tom for you and for me as well, speaking about what the yoked life means. First are these simple words of Jesus, as Tom offers them. Take my yoke and learn from me. Here's what Tom puts, how Tom puts it. Here in his great invitation, Jesus refers to a training yoke. How did a training yoke work? The farmer would put two oxen in the yoke side by side. He put the, put the mature, experienced ox on the larger, larger side of the yoke and the younger, inexperienced ox on the other side. In the yoke, the young ox becomes an apprentice to the experienced ox. The young ox, used to, unbrid- used to un- unbridled selfish pursuits, would want to go off the path when he saw green grass or refreshing stream of water. Rather than letting the young ox do his own thing, the mature ox would gently guide him back on course. When the young ox, sent- centered- when the young ox entered the yoke, he left an old way of life and submitted to a new master that would train him. The young ox would get to know intimately the other ox and learn everything the older ox knew. In the course of time, the young ox would become just like the mature ox. The yoke was the means by which training and transformation occurred. Well, Tom goes on and says this very simply, right into your heart and mine. Not only does Jesus invite you to a life of intimacy, he also invites you to a life of apprenticeship where you learn how to live your life like Jesus would if he were you. So brothers and sisters, hear it again. Take my yoke, learn from me. Yes, come and see. Amen.